0: Let's get going to the gym today. <laughs> Having some fun up here. Good stuff. Well, I want to um, invite us into this text this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we're looking at the first 17 verses. So uh, to give you a little background, this is kind of uh, moving ahead in the story. David has just been anointed king and... He has defeated his enemies, and now he is speaking with God through the prophet Nathan. When the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar palace, but God's chest, God's ark is housed in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you are thinking because the Lord is with you. But that very night the Lord's word came to Nathan, Go to my servant David and tell him, This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build the temple for me to live in. In fact, I haven't lived in a temple from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt until now. Instead, I've been traveling around in a tent and in a dwelling. Throughout my traveling around with the Israelites, did I ever ask any of Israel's tribal leaders I appointed to shepherd my people? Why haven't you built me a cedar temple? So then say this to my servant David. David. This is what the Lord of Heavenly Forces says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be a leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've eliminated all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest people on earth. I'm going to provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and no longer be disturbed. Cruel people will no longer trouble them as they had been earlier. When I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors. I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a temple for my name. And I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Whenever he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings, but I will never take my faithful love away from him like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor of you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God and let us pray. Lord, we are grateful for this great day, and we ask that as we hear your word, read and preached, that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us through it. Open our hearts, our eyes, and ears to what you have to say to us today. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, when you think of the word dynasty, what comes to mind? Maybe... It's the cheesy 80s TV series about the Carrington family, which was a spinoff of many other series. There was a whole raft of these back in the 80s. Remember Dallas, who shot J.R. and, and Dynasty and Knott's Landing and, and rich people with first world problems. That was all about Dynasty. You might think of some of the rulers of Ancient cultures, like in China, where we mark things by dynasties. Did you see this last week that the king of Thailand died after ruling for 70 years? That's a long time. That's a dynasty. Of course, where I'm from, we think of dynasty as only one thing, and that is the steel curtain of the 1970s, (laughs) who won four Super Bowls in six years dynasty. No one has matched it yet. But we're talking about dynasties today, and dynasties do come and go. This dynasty that we read about in 2 Samuel. By the way, that was the really cheap way to get a Steelers reference in today. <laughs> we're playing the Patriots, so we need all the help we can get today. But, um, but we're talking about this royal line of David. That's what the text is about today. And And David is a a fascinating figure. You know, we we go back to where we were last week, and Samuel was born, and Samuel will grow up to be one of Israel's great prophets, and he will do for the people what they ask, which is anoint them a king. And the king that they get is the kind of king that everybody wants. He is tall, he's handsome, he is a great warrior, and he also turns out to be somewhat of a psychopath. He is disturbed by rivalry, as most kings in the ancient world were. He thinks that everyone's out to get him. And so he tries to circle around and and secure his dynasty. He's afraid of his enemies. He, He circumvents what God is telling him to do sometimes. David kills Goliath, the great giant of the Philistines. And the women of Israel sing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands that is changing fan clubs in the ancient world. And so Saul is furious and jealous of David. In fact, at one point, David is playing the harp in Saul's presence, and Saul hurls a spear at David, just barely missing him. And David is on the run from Saul. But there's this whole section of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel where David is kind of on the run, and it's this marvelous kind of action hero story where he is... He is eluding Saul, and at the same time, he is out battling Israel's enemies. He is is the ultimate action figure. Well, Saul's reign then ends kind of ignominiously. Saul is in battle and is about to be overrun, and his son Jonathan has been killed, David's best friend killed, and Saul decides that he's going to fall on his sword, and so he does and he dies and his reign ends and his body and that of his son Jonathan are taken to the city of Beit Shon, which some of you have been to Israel with us and have been to Beit Shon. They hung their bodies from the walls of Beit Shon, which was kind of a way of, of reminding everyone else that don't mess with us. This is how it is. That's how, what you did with your enemies in the ancient world. And so David becomes king. And David is successful. He defeats all the enemies that are around him. And in fact... He conquers the city of Jerusalem, which was held by the Jebusites' very strong fortress, but he sends men up through the water shaft that goes down to the Gihon Spring, and they come into the city and they open the gates. It's kind of a Trojan horse kind of thing that happens. And, and David takes over the city and makes it his capital. He builds his palace. But once he's secure, he looks around and says, "You know, I have my palace, I've won. I've got rest from my enemies." Now is the time to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. I remember what the Ark, where the Ark has been this whole time. It's been traveling with the people of Israel when they were wandering in the desert during the Exodus. It was brought into the land last week. Uh, Elkanah and, and Hannah went to visit Shiloh where the tabernacle was to worship there. And that's where Hannah prayed her travailing prayer which we talked about last week. But now David says, I want to bring it here to Jerusalem, and I want to build a temple for it. Now, one of the things that we have to ask here is, what exactly is David's motivation? On one level, David is thankful that God has done these things for him, has preserved him throughout this entire process. And one of the things that kings did in the ancient world, kings from different cultures, is when they won a great victory they would build a temple to the particular God that they thought helped them achieve it. Another reason you might build a temple, though, is not only to say thank you to this particular God, but also that you might continue to have this God's favor going forward. So it was a transactional kind of way of thinking. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch Yours. Transactional theology. Maybe, and for the purposes of this sermon, I'm going to suggest that it is, David's way of paying God back. Transactional theology. We should be fairly familiar with this, right? Because we do this sometimes. We have this kind of transactional theology with God. God, if you do this thing for me, I will do this thing for you. That's how everybody on TV prays, right? The only time you see prayer on TV is when someone is in trouble. God, if you get me out of this, I will do X, Y, and Z. We pray. And sometimes, even when we are devout Christians, we believe in God, we know about grace, we know about all these things, but we still live this kind of transactional theology. If I pray more, God will bless me more. If I Show up in church every Sunday. There's got to be some heavenly reward for that. If I give more money to the church, John's not in here, is he? If I give more money to the church, then God will give me more money. That's the theology you hear on a lot of TV preachers, that kind of prosperity theology, right? Like God is a giant vending machine that the more I put in, the more I get out transactional kind of theology. Now, that does not mean that we should not pray or attend worship or give to the church. We do that to build and maintain and nurture a relationship with God, but not for the purposes of gaining God's favor. We like to do that, though, because I think at base, because we're sinful humans, we try to earn it. And this is particularly difficult for those of us who are perfectionists. Anybody in here kind of a perfectionist? Everybody's raising their hand slowly. Yeah. Um, I am an adopted child, and there's a lot of research that suggests that adopted children, even if they grew up in a very nurturing, loving, adoptive home, still, in some level, it's almost wired into the DNA, are trying to prove that their existence is valid. And so we are very, tend to be very perfectionistic. We tend to be really high when things are going well and really low when they're not. My staff knows this, right? Any criticism, any criticism is like, is like look out, here's what happens. When I was a kid, I, I exhibited these properties when I was a kid. I loved baseball. I still do. But I don't play it anymore for a reason. And that is, it's the ultimate perfectionist sport. I mean, when I was pitching Every pitch needed to be a strike. If I did not strike out every batter, something was wrong. I used to get furious with umpires. I would paint those corners, paint them. Ball, ball. In fact, one day, I stormed off the mound and threw my glove at an umpire. I was 10. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) something is wrong there, okay? In school, you know, when you're doing grades, kindergarten, the weekly reader, you know, you don't even get a letter grade. It's like she puts a smiley face on there or a frowny face or a neutral face. I got neutral face once, and I thought my whole world had come to an end. I would argue over the A minus. Anybody else in here do that? Why could I not get it? Now, when I joined the army... They really loved that perfectionist streak in me. Double, triple, quadruple check everything, make that happen. Everything squared away the way it's supposed to be. But you know what? It doesn't work very well in ministry. When I came into the ministry, I really was sort of like David wanting to build this house for God that God would be pleased if we had bigger, better, stronger, faster that if the church was thriving that meant that I was pleasing God and I would do all kinds of things to make that happen including treating the people in my churches as though they were workers building the temple that I was constructing for God it didn't work Because one of the things you learn if you have a transactional theology is that it doesn't always work this way. That just because you've piled up all kinds of good deeds, God doesn't automatically give you the same amount in return. In fact, sometimes there's more challenge. And sometimes when we are feeling like abject failures, God gives us that which we don't deserve. He gives us His grace. The Bible tells us over and over again that grace is God's modus operandi. It's the way he operates. It was grace that kept God from, from destroying Adam and Eve, which we talked about at the beginning of this series. They were out of the garden, but he was still with them. It was grace that enabled Abraham, who had no business having children, he and Sarah, but enabled them to to be a father and mother of a great nation. It was grace that preserved the people of Israel when they were dancing around a golden calf and Moses was on the mountain pleading for their lives. It was God who stayed with them even when they turned against him. It was grace that enabled Hannah who prayed for a son to have one. And in her thanksgiving, she knew she could not match God, but she gave her son to God return sometimes we don't get what we deserve thanks be to God for that grace is God's unmerited gift God's unmerited gift given at God's initiative given to us when we didn't deserve it as Paul says in Romans while we were perfect Christ died for us. No, it's not what it says. Some of you went, was that in there? No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace. God promises David a house. God says, look, David, you don't have to build me a house. I haven't been living in a house. I'm quite comfortable living in this tent And dwelling with the people. I've been doing it the whole time. Did I ask any of these people before you to build me a temple? No, I'm not asking you to do that either. This is your idea. Now, your son is probably going to build that for me. But for you, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build you a house. But not a house made of cedar and stone. But rather, a dynasty. Listen to the promise, again, that God gives them. If, if you look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 9 through 11, three things. Verse 9, I will make you a great name. You will be famous. You'll have a great name. I will appoint a place for my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Does this sound familiar? This is almost the exact same promise that God gives to Abraham. that, that I will make your name great, that I'm going to give you this land for your people, and then I will dwell with you. That's what rest really means. Not only just rest from your enemies, in other words, peace, but rather God's very presence resting with him. The people of God in the place of God dwelling in the presence of God. That's God's whole plan from the beginning. And God is going to do this through David's descendants. Now, They don't deserve it. We learn that even David himself, right after this, just a couple chapters later, goes off the rails a bit. David becomes king. He's defeated all of his enemies and and there's still some stuff going out on the borders. And so he sends the army out to fight. And then one of the chapters in 2 Samuel says, In the spring when kings go off to war, David was in his palace. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And he's walking around on the palace roof one day, and he looks across the way, and he notices a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. And he says to himself, I am the king. I want her. And so there is this whole drama where he subverts her husband, Uriah, who was one of David's faithful soldiers. And he makes sure that Uriah is at the front line in the next battle so that he gets killed so that he can have Bathsheba, whom he had the affair with. And their first son dies. Second son is Solomon, who will be the king after David. But not until there was a lot of Sibling rivalry with the other sons of David battling over the throne. David's on the run for his life again. But finally Solomon comes, becomes king. We think, great, everything is stabilized. The first thing Solomon does is ask for wisdom. And we think, good for you Solomon, that's what a king should ask for. And God gives him wisdom, but then he doesn't really use it that well. He becomes infatuated with the things that... In Deuteronomy, God told the kings of Israel not to become infatuated with three G's gold, guns. They didn't have guns, but chariots. I just like the G. Gold, guns, and girls. Don't have too many wives. Gold, guns, and girls. Don't have them. What does Solomon do? He amasses for himself a great fortune, a great army. 700 wives and 300 concubines who turn his attention away from God when Solomon dies his kingdom splits in two there is a great civil war and eventually the northern kingdom is absorbed into the Assyrian empire and the southern kingdom will be absorbed into the Babylonian empire the kings who follow David's line with a couple of exceptions are abject failures And yet, God tells David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. In fact, in the text, it uses the word forever three times as a reminder. Three times. But it's not dependent on the fidelity of these kings. It's only dependent upon God's grace. Look at verses uh, 14 and 15. God writes about or tells through Nathan the prophet what he's going to do. I will be a father to him, meaning David's son, and he will be a son to me. Whenever he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings. But I will never take my faithful love away from him like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor of you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Forever. How was that possible? I mean, in 586 BC, the temple that Solomon built is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant disappears. Some say it's buried under the Temple Mount. Some say it was taken to Ethiopia. Some believe that it's in a warehouse in New Jersey. We don't know, but, but God's glory departs from the temple. People are sent into exile. The, king, the last king of Israel has his eyes put out and he's taken off in chains as a captive. And we think, what's happened to this dynasty? The people look back and say, where is, this, where is this king who's supposed to be on the throne forever? What happened? And they're looking for him and looking for him and looking for him. And then when he arrives, it's not in the way they expect. A man named Joseph lives in a place called Nazareth. He is a distant relative of David. And he finds out that his wife, Mary, is pregnant. Not in the usual way. And they will have a son who will be part of David's line. He will be born in obscurity in the small town of Bethlehem, which is David's hometown, a place known for shepherds. He will grow up. And act like royalty even though he is an impoverished, itinerant preacher. He will act in royal ways like forgiving sins and healing. Proclaiming God's justice among the people. And because he claimed to be a king but didn't look like one, they would nail him to a cross dying the death of a slave, not the death of a king. Of course, three days later, he would rise again and establish his kingship forever. God's promise to David comes true in spades. But it's all dependent on God's grace. Without God, nothing happens. Nothing lasts forever. You know, dynasties fail. TV shows get cancelled. Royal dynasties get overthrown. The Steeler dynasty of the 70s died. I was there the day that it died. The one game that I ever attended, a Steeler game in person, January 9th, 1983, Three River Stadium, 33 degrees, Minus seven wind chill. Playing the Chargers. We waited in line eight hours for tickets in eight below zero weather for this playoff game. And they lost 31 to 28. Dan Fouts. Dan Fouts. <laughs> Steel Curtain retired. Terry Bradshaw would retire the next year and the dynasty was done. And then we had the 80s and the Mark Malone years dynasties go away only God's grace lasts forever God's promise never fails you know in verses 18 and 19 David in hearing this from from the prophet Nathan responds in a prayer here's what he prays who am I Lord God and of what significance is my family that you have brought me this far But even this was too small in your eyes, Lord God. Now you have also spoken about your servant's dynasty in the future and the generations to come. Who am I, David says. I don't deserve it. He is thankful. All he can do is receive God's grace. I tried really hard to build great temples for God. In the churches I've served I've tried really hard and striven and worked extra hours and and put myself out in that place to to make things happen I've made people angry I have struggled to please others to please God A few years ago, a friend of mine who was a counselor, we sat down together and she said, Do you think that God loves you just because he made you? That you are not a mistake? That regardless of what you do, God loves you anyway? He's loved you from the very beginning and wants to love you into being the person He's called you to be. Now I had preached grace all the time. I'm a Methodist. That's what we do. God's prevenient grace which calls out to us. God's justifying grace which saves us and gives us new birth. God's sanctifying grace that helps us to grow into the people God created us to be. I knew it here but I didn't know it here and when I realized that I realized it wasn't about performing oh I still struggle with that but it's always about what God will accomplish who am I? who am I? a child of the king you are a child of the king as well And I don't know what temples you're trying to build or what transactional way of thinking you might have with God this morning, but I will tell you, all of it is dust in comparison to God's grace. Maybe you've tried earning God's approval, you already have it. Maybe you've tried to measure up. There's only one standard. God's grace. And God's grace comes to us and when we realize it, when we receive it, it begins to transform us. And when it transforms us, it can't help but be passed on to someone else. It's passed on to someone else, passed on to another generation until it becomes a dynasty of grace. David understood that even in his sin and brokenness, God was going to do a great thing. God will do a great thing through you and me as well. If we will only embrace this dynasty of grace. Let us pray. Lord God, we, we don't get this grace sometimes. We, we struggle, we fight, we, we want so badly to be perfect. We think that if we can just stack up enough goodness, that'll be good enough. But we realize that we can never be good enough compared to you. It is your glory and your love that transforms us. We can't do it ourselves. We're too broken with sin and and hurt, regret, guilt. But Lord, you set us on a high rock and you remind us again that we belong to you. That you formed us in the womb and knew us even before we knew you. Lord, I pray that anyone here today who is struggling to receive this grace would open their heart and receive it and know that they are loved in ways they cannot even possibly imagine. You perfect us through your love. Thank you for this good news. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.